Good. Welcome wherever you're joining us this morning. Possibly you're online streaming live. Maybe you're in one of our venues uh, around the valley. Maybe you're in one of our venues right here on campus. And maybe you're in this room here with me. And no matter where you are, uh, we welcome you this morning. Listen, Jamie usually likes me to do a little bit of an update on what's going on with me up in the great white north of Toronto, Canada, but I've got about 30 minutes to preach 40 minutes worth of content this morning, so we're just going to get right into it, and I'm going to do a little bit of an update on what's going on with me next week. Uh, by the way, preachers typically don't cut their sermons back for just anything, but I am always happy to do that in order to make time for baptisms. That is so Cool. Those of you who got baptized today, thanks for letting us just be here and celebrate with you. Uh, we love you. Thanks for taking that public step. That was awesome. I've been studying the book of Colossians recently. That's kind of what's been on my heart and mind, and uh, that's what we've been tra uh, tracking through up at Bayview Glen. And so today I want to take us to a passage in uh, the first chapter of Colossians, and then next week I want to take us to a passage in the third chapter of Colossians that for me have become kind of anchor text to help me understand what Paul is doing throughout that entire book. And so hopefully we'll get a framework to understand all of Colossians today, and hopefully we'll uh, get a little bit of more understanding about who God is and who we are in the process. Does that sound good? Good. Even if it doesn't, I don't have anything else prepared, so that's what I'm going to do. All right? Let's pray together, and then we'll get into it. God, we invite you to speak to us. Holy Spirit of God, there is, uh, there is there's just one thing that only you can do, and that's change a heart. And so today, in and through your word, we invite you to speak. Draw us near to you, open our spiritual eyes and ears that we, we may behold wonderful things from your law and see Christ exalted. In his powerful name, we pray, God's people together said. Amen. Well, have you ever noticed that we live in a me culture? We live in an eye-saturated, self-focused, self-indulgent, dare I say even narcissistic me culture. For those of you who may not believe me, let me cite a couple of examples for you. Every year, the American Freshman Survey asks thousands of college students across North America a number of questions, and recent surveys note that over the last 40 years, there has been a, quote, dramatic increase in the number of students who describe themselves as being above average in academic ability, drive, and self-confidence. Interestingly enough, the study also notes a disparity between the students' opinions of themselves and their actual ability. The study literally calls it ambition inflation. They call it an epidemic of narcissism. That's a quote. We love ourselves. We love ourselves so much that we've created entire websites dedicated to self. They're called Facebook and Instagram. And then in 2013, November, there was a word added to the dictionary. That word is selfie. Here's what a selfie is. You take your phone, you hold it out, and you take a picture of yourself. Essentially, what you're saying to me is, Luke, I don't need you to take a picture of me. I can take a picture of me. And in order to make our narcissism a little more convenient and a little bit easier, we invented a gadget called the selfie stick. Have you heard of the selfie stick? You attach your phone to the end of an inanimate object and take a picture of yourself. I find this fascinating. 
Lest you think this is a new phenomenon, in 1759, a man named Adam Smith wrote a text called uh, The Theory of Moral Sentiments. You might know Adam Smith. He wrote a book called The Wealth of Nations, kind of the founder of the modern capitalism and free enterprise movement. But in The Theory of Moral Sentiments, Adam Smith argues for the existence of what's called the invisible hand. The invisible hand, according to Adam Smith, is this internal voice that tells you what's right and wrong. And you don't need anything on the outside to tell you, a sacred text, including the Bible. You don't need your community to tell you. You just listen to that inside voice, and whatever that inside voice says is going to be good for society. So listen to what Adam Smith is doing. He's taking morality out of the hands of the community around you. He's taking morality out of the hands of any higher power, God, or anything else, or he's taking morality out of the hands of any kind of text, and he's relocating the definition of morality inside. Self-indulgence, narcissism. For those of you who might think that we grow up to become this way, I would say uh, that Lady Gaga has a lot of things that she says that are wrong, but one of them that she does say that's right is we were indeed born this way. In order to demonstrate that, I would like you to, uh, I would like to introduce you to my daughter. This is my daughter up here on the screen. This is Kaya. Uh, it's, hard, it's hard to tell from the picture, but she's adopted. I know it's, um, <laughs> it's difficult to tell. And so I want to read you Kaya's favorite book. This is what we do every evening before bed. This book is called Pikahu. You're going to love it because she does, and if you don't, I'll be angry. Um, Pika, moo, and there's a picture of a cow. You like that? Pika, boo, and there's a picture of a ghost. And right about this time in the book, I kid you not, every single time, Kaya starts to get excited. She starts to breathe heavier. She starts to groan and grunt. She has this grunt thing, and she does her hands like this. She does her hands. She's getting fired up because she knows what's coming at the end of Pikahu. Pika, and a bunch of animals, zoo. Pika, and this is the last one before kind of the grand finale here. Pika, choo-choo, choo-choo, isn't that great? Kaya's getting fired up by this point. She's excited. She's ready. She's waiting with bated breath. Pika, you, and there's a mirror, and she sees herself, and I am not kidding. It never fails. Every time a little girl grabs that mirror, and she brings it to her face and kisses herself every time, <laughs> every time. As a song on the radio says these days, I got to kiss myself. I'm so pretty. <laughs> You know why she does that? Because she's a narcissistic little sinner, that's why. <laughs> she's cute. She's cuter than all your kids, but she's narcissistic and self-indulgent. <laughs> she thinks that the world revolves around her. From the way we feel about ourselves to how we understand morality, to the entitlement that's rampant in our culture, to our infatuation with facial moisturizer and hair product, we live in a me culture. Paul's central claim here in Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 through 17 is a 180 degree turn and sprint in the other direction from the me culture we live in. Paul wants us to know two things in this first anchor passage in Colossians chapter 1. Number one, you are not the center of the universe. Number two, Jesus is. So after some introductory comments, Paul introduces himself to that church in, Coloss in Colossae, and then he prays for them. Look at verse 15 of Colossians chapter one. Here is the first anchor passage. Paul writes this. He, that's Jesus, is the image 
of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now remember, Paul is a converted Jew, so his theology, that is to say what he believes about God, has been shaped by the Old Testament scripture. So Paul's view of God is lofty to say the least. So if we can understand just a little bit about Paul's theology, that is to say, if we can understand a little bit about what Paul believes about God, then we would understand how radical this claim really is from Colossians chapter one. You see, as a converted Jew, Paul would have had the events of Exodus chapter 33 committed to memory. They would have uh, taken hold of his heart at the very fabric of his being. In Exodus chapter 33 verse 18, Moses asked God, please show me your glory. In other words, God, I want to see you fully revealed. I want to see you face to face. I want to see all of you. And the Lord says, and I quote, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. Paul would have held this truth very, very deeply in the core of his being. No one can see God and live. He's too holy. He's too wonderful. He's too majestic. Not only that, listen to how Paul himself describes God in Romans chapter 11. Paul says this, oh, the depth and the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and no man can fathom his ways. No one has known the mind of the Lord. No one has given him counsel. No one has given to him that he should repay. For from him and to him and through him are all things. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul writes to his disciple Timothy, he says this, God alone has immortality who dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. For Paul, God is too glorious to behold, too amazing to comprehend, too much to take in. He's unapproachable, unfathomable, far beyond what we could conceive, much less know. He's distinct, exalted, majestic, and radically other than you and me. But here in Colossians 1, Paul says that Jesus is the image of God. That word image in the original language is the Greek word akon. It's where we get our word icon from. But when we say icon these days, we're typically referring to a symbol of a reality, a representation of a reality. Like a logo represents a brand or like a logo represents a team. But in Greek philosophy, they use that word akon differently. The akon had a share in the reality that it revealed and could even be said to be that reality. So listen close. An acone was not considered distinct from what it represented. It was part and parcel the thing itself. So when Paul says that Jesus is the image or the acone of God, he is saying that in Jesus, God himself, that God that we just described, is present with us. You starting to see how radical this claim really is? Paul was almost killed for it in Acts chapter 9, by the way. This mystery of God becoming flesh is so great that the Bible uses word pictures to help us wrap our mind around it. In John chapter one, the apostle writes this, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, verse 14, and the word became flesh 
and dwelt among us. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, the author of Hebrews says this, He, that's Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. I love the way that the author of Hebrews describes Jesus as the radiance of the glory of God. That helps me to get a picture of what the Bible means when, when Paul says that he is the image of God. That word radiance is the same word in the Old Testament, for those of you who are familiar with the Old Testament, as the Shekinah glory of God, the, the very presence of God. It's the same word. And it's an active verb. It's not a passive verb. So listen close to what the author of Hebrews is saying. He's not saying that Jesus reflects God, but that Jesus shines, active. Like the radiance of the sun is not the sun itself, yet it is the essence of the sun. The radiance and the sun are distinct, yet one and the same. They are inextricably bound and interdependent, yet somehow they exist independently of one another, and we experience each of them differently. And when the rays of the sun hit your face, which in the last couple of days, it's been the first time for me in a long time. I live in Canada. Um, when the rays of the sun hit your face, you're not experiencing the effects of the sun. You're not experiencing the impact of the sun. You're experiencing the sun. So in the same way, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, distinct from God, yet God himself, inextricably bound, yet independent. And when you experience Jesus, you are experiencing God himself. Paul says that Jesus is not a reproduction or a facsimile or a mini-me God. He is the word, the radiance, the exact imprint, the acone, the image of God. In other words, God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God who lives in unapproachable light became flesh and dwelt among us. Now that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. And what does this mean for you and me on a day-in, day-out basis that Jesus is the image of the invisible God? Well, it means that in Jesus, God is personal and knowable. That's what it means. It means that in Jesus, God is personal and knowable. Let's talk about what it means that God is, is personal. I love how Pastor Jamie has helped me personally and our church, our congregation, wrap our minds around what it means that God is personal. Jamie tells a story about guys that come into his office, and I've had guys share the same type of uh, story with me about their faith journey and their faith background, and here's a little bit of how that goes. They say, well, I grew up with it, and then in high school, I had some questions about it, and then in college, I joined a frat, and I really walked away from it. I mean, a long way, right? And then I got married, and I came back to it, and then my wife and I found a church, and they teach a lot about it, and now we're raising our children in it, and I'm pretty excited about it. You know, if Paul was here, you know what he would say to you? It? Him. Personal. And because God is personal, he can be known. He's knowable. Here's what this means. If you want to know God truly in your heart, if you want to know God, look at Jesus. 
Look at Jesus. You wanna know what makes God happy? Find out what makes Jesus happy. You wanna know what makes God sad? Find out what makes Jesus sad. You wanna know what makes God angry and some things make God angry? Find out what makes Jesus angry. You wanna know what would cause God to throw a party in heaven? Figure out why Jesus would throw a party. If you want to know God, look at Jesus. Because this God who was once hidden from our eyes, too great to fathom, has revealed himself completely in Jesus. Jesus, and now we can know him personally. And and for some of you, I just want to tell you, this is all you need to hear today. That's it. That God is personal and God can be known because maybe you grew up in a faith background that taught that God is to be appeased or or God is, is, is to be kind of acknowledged, but then you kind of go on and live your life. And Jesus comes on the scene and says, no, God is to be known personally. In one cosmic act of unfathomable grace, that word was tough for me, unfathomable. (laughs) I'm gonna slow down. In one cosmic act of unfathomable grace, the unchangeable, all-powerful, unapproachable God made himself personal and knowable in Jesus. That's good news. That's great news. So now that we understand the person of Christ, let's take a look at the work of Christ, especially as it relates to creation, the things that we can see. Look at verse 16. Paul writes this. He says, For by him, that's Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Pastor Daryl Delhousey, I had the opportunity to serve under Daryl my first two years here at Scottsdale Bible Church, taught this congregation well, and he taught us a great little Bible study trick, and I want to share it with you because it's a great trick. He says, look for phrases that the Bible repeats, because when the Bible repeats words or phrases, it's important, and so when Paul repeats that phrase, all things, four times in two verses, Do you think it matters? You bet it does. You bet it does. Paul wants us to understand Christ's role in all things, four times in two verses. So here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna throw some numbers out at you and I'm gonna do it fast. Don't try to write this stuff down. Just track with me because here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna try to wrap our minds around what all things really means. Ready? The moon is 211,000 miles away from us. You could walk there if you covered 24 miles a day every day for 27 years and you had a very tall ladder. Light travels at 186,000 miles per second. If we could travel at the speed of light, we could reach the moon in one and a half seconds. It would take us 27 years to walk there if we covered 24 miles a day, and at the speed of light, it would take us one and a half seconds. Jupiter is 367 million miles away. It would take us 35 minutes to get there at the speed of light. Neptune is three billion miles away. Three hours and 48 minutes at the speed of light. We might have to stop for a Snickers halfway through. The nearest star, nearest star, is seven times further away from us than Neptune. 20 billion miles away. It would take us 26 hours to get there at the speed of light, and it's five times larger than the sun. 
Now let's wrap our mind around how big the sun is. If you could bore a hole in the sun and pour earths in there, you could fit 1.2 million earths inside of the sun. And you'd still have room for 4.3 million moons. The brightest star in the night sky, brightest, is 51,165,252,300,000 miles away from us. The seventh brightest star in the night sky is 880 quadrillion miles away. Its diameter is 200 million miles greater than the Earth's orbit. The largest known star is Canis Majoris. It's 3,600 times larger than the sun. 3,600 times larger than the sun, and it's so far away you cannot see it with the naked eye. At 1,000 miles an hour, it would take you 7 million years to get there. At the speed of light, it would take you 3,900 years to get there. And even if you could, you'd still be on the porch because scientists tell us that there are hundreds of billions of galaxies out there. If the moon were just a fraction of the distance closer to earth, if the oceans were just a bit deeper, or if the earth was tilted at a slightly different angle, we'd be swallowed up by ocean's tides, burned up by the sun, frozen by polar ice caps, or flung off into space like an Olympic athlete flings a hammer. And God still found time to create 800,000 plus species of insects. And in some of those species, there's over a billion. You don't believe me? visit me in Canada and count the mosquitoes at my house. <laughs> so now that we have just a glimpse, just a picture of what all things means. What is Jesus' role? What is Christ's role in all things? Paul uses three different prepositions in verse 16 to tell us about Christ's role in all things. Those three prepositions are by, through, and for. All things were created by him, through him, and for him. Now remember, Paul was a citizen of multiple countries. He spoke several languages. He was very well-traveled, extremely well-educated, and skilled in a trade. This is not a stupid man. So he does not use different prepositions for kicks and giggles here. He uses different prepositions on purpose because each preposition carries with it a different implication and a different meaning. Look up here on the screen. This word by in the original Greek is the word en, and it means that there was some vision or creativity created by Jesus. There was an imagination on the part of Christ. And this word through in the original language is dia, and it means that there was agency or activity activity on the part of Christ. And this word for in the original language is ace. And it means that there was direction or even purpose for creation. So here's what Paul is saying. He's saying that all things that we just wrapped our head around to the best of our ability now did not exist even as a thought until Jesus imagined them. And once he imagined them, he created them by the word of his power. And why did he do that? The purpose? So they would all point to him. So like an artist imagines a landscape and then picks up a brush and puts it on a canvas, Jesus imagined all things and he picked up his metaphorical paintbrush and began to paint the sky. And just as you and I might go to an art gallery and look at a painting and step back and go, wow, Look at that, that guy is good. You know what creation's for? So we could see it and enjoy it and step back and go, wow, that Jesus is good. He's good. Physicist. 
tell us that at the center of atoms, there is vast space between protons and neutrons. And when I say vast, the space between protons and neutrons, listen closely, is relative to the space between planets. At the center of atoms, the space between protons and neutrons is relative to the space between planets. And though there are theories of what holds those infinitesimally small elements together, no one really knows how it works. There's a bunch of folks that would say, it's this and this, but to get to the nitty-gritty and the details of that, even physicists don't know that. You want me to tell you how those things hold together? You ready? In him, all things, there we go, hold together. That's how they're held together. By the word of his power. One Bible scholar says it this way, he, that's Jesus, keeps the cosmos from becoming a chaos. Here's our second truth today, ready? In Jesus, all things hold together and find their purpose. In Jesus, all things hold together and find their purpose. Now, I'm going to make fun of Jamie Rasmussen for a moment here. Isn't that great? Isn't that fun? Somebody's going, ooh, they can't fire me now. Um, I love Jamie's jokes. I love them. I love the ones especially that he repeats often, and so I'm going to do one of them now. Are you ready? I looked up that word all, all things. I looked up that word all in the original Greek, and you want to know what it means? All. You love that joke, don't you? That's a Jamie joke. I love that one. So does that phrase, all things, include you and me? Of course it does. Of course it does. So if Jesus imagined and constructed and sustains all things, and if, and he does, hold all things together, and if all things are meant to give him attention and glory, then what about you and me? We're meant to do the same. Because he imagined us and constructed us and sustains us, because we did not exist even as a thought until Jesus imagined us, because he knit us together in our mother's womb, and because he sustains us and every breath that we take in and exhale is only by the word of his power. For all these reasons and so many more, in Jesus, you are held together and find your purpose. In Jesus, you are held together and find your purpose. And this is why that me-centered, self-indulgent, narcissistic reality that we live in sometimes falls apart at the seams. Because Jesus is meant to be the burning sun at the center of the universe and the weight of his glory and the gravitational pull of all that he is hold our lives together and give them purpose. And if we usurp that role that is rightfully Jesus and put ourselves at the center of reality, like an Olympic athlete flings a hammer, our life just flings off the rails into oblivion. That role is above our pay grade. As a friend of mine would say, we do not have the requisite gravitas to live at the center of the universe. But you know who does? Jesus does. Jesus does. Jesus imagined it, created it, and sustains it. Jesus imagined you, created you, 
and sustains you. I don't know about you, but when I feel like my life comes off the rails just a little bit, even my internal life, when it feels uh, like it's, there's something just amiss there or, or relationships I, you know, or, my, or my marriage. And when Amy and I aren't getting along, I know that that's hard to believe. I mean, I'm, I'm a peach to live with. Um, when, I, when I sense that, you, you, know, you know what that should be a clue? That I've placed myself at the center of the universe, that I'm focused on me. I just had coffee with a brother in Christ this week, and, and he and I uh, were not getting along on some things. And I, I, I just, I prayed, I was like, oh God, you know, tell me, give me the words to make him change. And, <laughs> and he did not give me those words. You know what he said is, hey, hey Luke, it's not about you, buddy. Why don't you, why don't you step off the throne why don't you get me back at the center of that universe that you're living in and watch all the planets fall into place because I have the requisite gravitas to live there, you do not. And so when I had coffee with this brother and I just said, I love you, I want God's best for you, it's about him. You know what he said? I love you, I want God's best for you, and let's reconcile. And we had a great coffee, it was, it was the best hour of my week but it was all about getting Jesus back at the center. Let's finish this way. In 12 verses, Paul is gonna tell us in Colossians 1 verse 27 that that Jesus, that Jesus that makes God personal and knowable, that Jesus that holds all things together and gives you purpose, that Jesus that has the requisite gravitas to sit on the throne of the universe and the throne of your life lives in you. And he is our hope of glory. Now, what does that phrase, hope of glory, mean? We're going to have to come back next week for that one. <laughs> for those of you in the chapel, I'll look forward to seeing you next week. For those of you in the venue, Rustin's going to be back in John chapter 15 next week, and you're going to love that. I had a great conversation with Rustin this week about what he's been preaching through in the book of John. So listen, can I encourage you with something? You, you really want to double dip? Come here Saturday night and go hear Rustin over in the venue just next door on Sunday morning. For those of you in the venue, you can do the same. But for those of us in this space, those of us in the chapel, we're gonna be in Colossians chapter three, verses one through four, and talk about Christ, our hope of glory, next week. And until then, let's pray together and we'll be done. God, we love you and we desire that you, Jesus, are the burning sun at the center of our universe around which all of our planets rotate. We desire, God, that we would find the anchor for our soul, the anchor for our life in you and in you alone. May you be first. May you be last. May you go before us and behind us, above and below, on left and right. God, may we step off of that throne and place you there and live with you at the center of our universe. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you are and all that you've done. In the name of Christ, with enthusiasm, the people of God together said, Amen. Amen.